0: Lord's Day we read from Numbers chapter 30 and we saw among many things that a, an observant dutiful husband who sees his wife making thoughtless vows, acting in ways that he does not consider to be profitable for her, can and should step in to relieve her of that. That's a part of being a husband. And if he doesn't, if a husband does not step in in those situations, in his inactivity, he is actually establishing what he's doing. He's allowing her to continue. That is the exact same as a stamp of approval on her actions. Now, who else would we imagine to be a better caretaker of his bride than the Lord Jesus I think we agree that he's not a, a derelict husband. He doesn't and has not left his bride to just figure things out on her own. He doesn't say, well, she, she knows what her role is and it's none of my business to, to, to mingle in her affairs. She's a smart bride. I'll let her do her thing. I'd rather not start the argument. So I'll just, I'll just let it be. He's not that way. He's not a passive bridegroom. He... Pursues his bride, and when he sees his bride in danger, when he sees his bride making mistakes, when he sees his bride, the church, acting in ways or saying things that are harmful to her, he does not just let it go. He steps in. Why? Because he's a good husband. Now in Pergamum, the church there, there were some who were beginning to mess around with dangerous teachings, harmful and destructive heresies. And so we see in this letter, Christ steps in. Here, based on what they're doing, very tenderly, in much compassion, in far more tenderness than, the, than this church or any church deserves. So He comes very gently, but at the same time as we're going to see, He threatens that if the issue is not resolved, he's going to get involved in a more intimate way that's not going to be quite as gentle. And we can ask again, why? And the answer is because he loves his bride, because he is a good husband, a good bridegroom. So we follow the same pattern that we saw established in the letter to the church at Ephesus. We ask knowing these were seven real churches meant to typify all churches in all ages. So we ask, what were they doing right and what can we learn from that? What were they doing wrong and what should we learn from that? And then what does the Lord Jesus have to say specifically to address their errors and how does that transfer down through the ages to us? So the question that we need to ask first is, what were they doing right? And we're going to come back to verse 12. We'll come back to the address. We'll start at verse 13. The first thing that I want you to see is that they were being faithful in a difficult place. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He brings up their dwelling, that is their location, because it was in fact a very difficult place to have a Christian church. And we need to understand that the location of our church and the churches of Christ is not an insignificant matter. If you go through church planting training school of some large denomination, you might find out that they, they will say, where do you think it would be a good place to plant a church? What, what, what strikes you as a good place? Or they might say, you, you want to look at the, uh, the growth of the economy. Where do you see apartment complexes being built? Where do you see the, the job market increasing? That's where you want to plant a church. Because that's where people are going to be moving and that's going to be a a busy and bustling place, a growing place. But that's not always how Christ establishes His churches. Christ places His lampstands very providentially and every church has a specific place where it ought to be. And we have to understand that for us, for every church, our calling is where we are, not somewhere else. If Pergamum had been faithful in Ephesus, they would have still been failures in Pergamum. The church has to be faithful exactly where it's placed and this church is in the city of Pergamum. You know, I told you several weeks ago the local deity in Pergamum was the god of Sclepios, the god of the healing arts, worshiped in the form of a serpent. There are also temples to Zeus, many other gods and goddesses of Greek mythology. But Jesus is very specific here when He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And throughout the Revelation, a throne is not... It's not set forth for us to look for something that looks like a throne. In the Revelation, as in all Scripture, a throne symbolizes authoritative power. So not only was Pergamum the center of worship for Asclepius... Pergamum was the center of emperor worship in Asia Minor. Pergamum was the very first city in Asia to have a temple to Caesar Augustus. When when we say emperor, that is the Roman king, the Roman Caesar, the ruler of the Roman Empire. And so this idea that we we have heard of historically and that we mention often, this this forced worship where someone was, was required to pinch incense and burn incense and say, Caesar is Lord, that was something that would have been even more strictly observed in Pergamum than anywhere else. This was sort of the capital of the worship of the Roman emperor. In other words, we might say in Pergamum, statism. Reigned supreme. Yes, they had their pagan altars. Yes, they had their their Greek and Roman mythological deities. But primarily in Pergamum, the god that was worshipped was the Roman emperor. We in our day might say the god of the state. Now, this brings us to another major theme that we'll have to keep in mind throughout the book of the Revelation, and that is this there is only one supreme throne. And there is only one king on that throne. It is the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. And, and that will not change. He sits on that throne now. He was sitting on that throne in the day that John wrote to Pergamum. Throughout history, men have sought to build up their own thrones, establish their own kingdoms. And in John's day, the chief opposition to the throne of Christ was not Asclepios, it wasn't Zeus. It was not Athena, it was Rome. The Roman emperor was the chief throne that was to be honored in the Roman Empire. And so in John's day, and just as in our day, we have to guard against this this dichotomy or a, a reduction of what the actual problem is. Because we might say, well, I would never bow to the altar of Zeus... I would never go into the temple of of Diana and offer sacrifices. I would never engage myself in these clearly pagan cultic practices. But we forget about the God of the governments of men that have been established among us. Now, to be clear, God has established human governments. But those human governments are still subject to Christ. We obey human governments not because they are supreme, but because Christ is supreme. And when those two compete, Christ gets our ultimate allegiance. Christ alone, when those two are in competition. And so we take comfort in knowing that Jesus Christ, our Lord who reigns over all of the kingdoms of the world, He is the King Of all kings. He's the Lord over all of the lords of the earth. He knows exactly where our church is. He knows what exactly our specific contextual difficulty is, just like He did in Pergamum. And He knows that very often we're confronted with the very same type of political idolatry. In Exodus 2, God knew the sorrow of His people, He heard their cry. In Romans 103, He knows our frame, He knows that we are but dust. So He understands where we are. He understands whatever the pressures might be in every situation. And so here we see again that He knows the placement of every church. He knows the difficulties that we're going to face. And that fact does not lessen our responsibility. We don't get to say, well, Jesus knows it's difficult. God knows it's hard. God knows that we're not perfect. No, this actually increases our responsibility. Because again, failure in our location... Is failure there are men in our day who would say well you can't you can't really bring that uh, force into my sphere where I work because where I work I'm dealing with things that you're not dealing with and so w- the scriptures while it might work for you for me I've got sort of different cards that I've been dealt and I'm just trying to do the best I can with with certain cards and so they think that that lowers the standard of holiness that they ought to carry. No, that increases it. If you fail in the one place you've been put, you failed. As a church, if we fail in Taylorsville, we failed. We don't get to surmise about, well, man, if if we were a church in Malawi, or if we were a church in Canada, or if we were a church in 18th century Puritan New England, boy, we would be knocking them dead. But, well, God knows that it's a little more difficult here than there. Now, this increases the responsibility that we have right where we've been placed. And, and the Pergamum Christians don't get a, a pass because they were existent in the city that was central for emperor worship. But they were being faithful in that difficult place. And the next thing we see that they were had also been faithful in difficult circumstances... We continue reading in verse 13 that they had... He says, yet you hold fast my name. There's a contrasting word there. Yet, even though, in light of where you are and the difficulties there, you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now several things we can pick up here. The first one is again helpful in our interpretation of the book of the Revelation. Notice that Roman persecution was happening, but it was not universal. Antipas was killed, one man was killed from this church, but everybody wasn't killed. This was not the exhaustive, the hunting down and tracking down of Christians that we might picture in a a Rome led by Nero, which again, that was still very much secluded to Rome itself. There was persecution, but it was not a universal persecution. Secondly, and this is even more important, Antipas receives this title of solidarity with Christ himself. In chapter 1, verse 5, we read of Christ, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Literally, the, the witness, the faithful one. And here, Antipas gets that exact same title. Because he had been faithful unto death, he's referred to as... Antipas, my witness, the faithful one. We know that the death of the saints of God is precious in His sight. We know that the Lord Himself said, whoever receives you receives me, that He's he's bound Himself up in this unimaginable solidarity with His people so that when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting Christians, Jesus could say, why are you persecuting me? In other words, He takes it very personally when His saints suffer The treatment of God's people he takes as personal treatment. And that's why Antipas receives that title, the faithful witness. He had been faithful unto death. And this church, the third thing we see here, is that in spite of that, in spite of one of their own having been killed for his faith, the saints in Pergamum had not caved in to these outside political pressures. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. In other words, as a congregation, they had not given in. They had not said, you know what, we can't make it. Let's just say Caesar is Lord. Get it over with. We're fine. We'll get him off of our backs. They held fast to the name of Christ. They would not cave. They would not buckle under pressure. And they would not deny the faith. When it says my faith there, that's not... The faith that Christ has, it's the faith that he owns. The faith, as in the complete body of revealed truth, which centers around the person and the work and the kingdom of Jesus Christ revealed to us in the scriptures that we are to receive by faith. We'll talk about faith tonight. They had not denied the faith, they stood fast, even as one of their own had been killed. And this is what they were doing right. What can we learn from this? We see that they were ministering in a hard place where even the Roman imperial cult could not get them to bow the knee. They had resolved, like the apostles before them, we must obey God rather than men. Probably many of the same pressures in Smyrna, except they don't get the word that had been given to Smyrna. There is no forthcoming death or imprisonment, but they had not buckled under the pressure. They had not changed their creed. They had not changed their confession of Christ. Here's what we can learn. In our day, we are to appreciate and we are to pray for the leaders that have been established over us. But we must always remember that they are not supreme. That any commitment that we have to this nation is only because of our allegiance to Christ. When they force us to disobey Christ... We obey anyway. When they begin to try to prohibit us from obeying Christ, we say, we're going to obey Him anyway. And you're just going to have to do what you do because Christ is supreme. He sets up thrones and He takes down thrones. He's the ruler of all kings. And we were talking yesterday at breakfast about this. The, The very existence of America or any nation that comes... To power and then falls to Christians ought to be just more historical evidence of the fact that Christ reigns. That what He is showing us, what He's allowing us to see in our own day is that there's only one kingdom that can't fall. All of the others will fall. So that's what they were doing right. They, they had remained faithful. They had not denied the faith. But now let's ask, what were they doing wrong? Verse 14, He says, But I have a few things against you. And here we see that standing against the tide of pressure from the outside is not all that constitutes a Christ-honoring church. We We can lock all the doors and batten down the hatches and avoid everything from the outside as much as we can, but that's not all that constitutes a biblical church. He says, You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now notice there are some there not everybody, but some people in the church who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We just read this. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now when I read this, that, the, the little phrase there, so also, could also be translated Thus. In other words, in the way that I just described you holding to the teachings of Balaam, you have some holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It's, the, the picture seems to be that this was happening in, in the Old Testament times, and now it's happening in the New Testament times. It just has a new name. At once it was what Balaam taught, now it's the Nicolaitans, but they have a name in the church and they're being received, or at least considered by some to be a part of the Christian church. What, what is the teaching of Balaam? Balaam couldn't curse Israel. He was a money-hungry prophet, but there's one thing he couldn't do. He could not pronounce a curse on the Israelites. And so, he wanted the money anyway. So he says, here, we'll work out another thing. I don't have to curse them. All we have to get them to do is bring the curse down upon themselves. So get some, we just read this, get some Moabite women to just sort of parade themselves in front of the people and I don't have to say a word. Their eyes will be caught And they will watch and they will just start following. And they will go into that sin. Numbers 25, 1 and 2. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Notice the the process here. They began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These, that would be the daughters, invited the people to sacrifice of their gods to the sacrifices of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. They, they became first sexually enticed by the Moabite women, involved and entangled with them sexually and then that led them to go and sacrifice to their idols and eat the food sacrificed to their idols to bow down to their gods. That was the teaching. So this has crept into the church in Pergamum. Obviously it's not a one-to-one comparison but here's what's happening. Rome demands worship. Now, we're supposed to be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13 says the, the magistrate is God's servant. We're supposed to, to subject ourselves, and well, if we don't pledge our allegiance in the way that they've prescribed, they're gonna kill us all. I mean, remember Antipas? We don't know if they're gonna come back, they might could take more of us. So, so here's the teaching: it's perfectly acceptable and appropriate to offer some worship to Caesar as long as in our hearts we still confess and hold to the truth. Almost a sort of a a Christianized statism. Let's just keep the peace. We'll just say it, do, do it out there in the world, say what they want to say. But when we come here, we all know that it wasn't real, that we didn't really mean what we said. It was just to keep peace with this encroaching political power. And that was what the Nicolaitans taught. We saw before that they were sort of an antinomian sect that said you can believe rightly and also act in ways that are contrary to Scripture. You can act contrary to the law of God and still be a Christian. These were the original champions of Christian liberty. We are not under the law. We are under grace. We have the liberty in Christ. And so we ought not bind ourselves by these strict rules of holiness. But we ought to be free, especially if it's going to keep us safe. Especially if it's going to help us to basically go along to get along with our culture. Now notice the language. He says, you have some there, not everybody, but some who hold the teaching of Balaam. So also you have some who hold the teaching. So there were some in the church who perhaps they were just you know, coming from time to time or maybe they were actually members in the church who were beginning to promote this teaching. This doctrine is creeping into Pergamum which says you can worship Christ and... Caesar, just don't publicly renounce the faith, don't publicly abandon Christ, but you can sort of do both, it was a a form of early syncretism, here's the problem, I mean all that's bad, but here's the problem, this teaching has been brought into the church and nobody, not even the elders are addressing it. They're just there. You have some there. They're in the church and they're holding to these teachings and it's beginning to seep into the congregation and nobody's doing anything. You're acting like it's normal to just have blatant false teaching in the church. Now we know from Scripture that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. We know from the Revelation that the church is the lampstand To hold up the light of the testimony of Christ. It's our job to contend earnestly for the faith, the one faith, once for all delivered to the saints. We also know the pastors of the church are to be trained in the words of the faith we are to rightly handle the word of truth to rightly divide it or to to cut a straight course in the truth to preach only the truth to teach what accords with sound doctrine to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine to keep a close watch on the teaching to keep the commandment unstained and pure free from reproach that's the job of the church everything that we do sort of falls under that umbrella so that we can say you've got one job just hold the truth Preserve the truth. Proclaim the truth. In every generation and wherever you are placed, your job is to be a bastion for the truth. So then a church that allows error to come in and doesn't do anything about it, it's not doing its job. Especially if it's doing that in order to accommodate the culture, to to get some of the pressure off of its back. A church that allows truth to continue is not illuminating the way of truth. They're not helping people see the truth better. They're not casting a light. They're not drawing people closer to God. They are blinding. They are fogging. They are, they are concealing the truth. A, a church that is, that is allowing these things to continue in and amongst its people is not being loving. They're hating the people who are pervading these truths. A church that doesn't contend for the faith is not a church. A church that doesn't hold up the truth is not a church that's inside the church and outside the church. It's amazing to me the number of people who want to constantly echo and champion this motto, "Uh, I don't go to church, I am the church. Like, I'm the church by myself wherever I go, and yet at the same time they say, and while I'm going, church, don't tell me what to do. What I do out here is none of your business. Either you are the church or you're not the church, but... As true believers, a part of a true church, what happens outside in our lives, as we saw, affects the church inside. We have to hold to the truth. The truth in church life. The truth in family life. The truth in work life. The truth in the political life. Everywhere that we find ourselves connected in this world... Even when we're not assembled as a congregation, our job is to be some sort of a, we might consider it a a brand or a a small flicker of the light of the truth. And when we get together, we, we burn brightly. But everywhere we go, we're here to maintain the truth. Elders who do not preach the truth, guard the truth, rebuke those who contradict the truth, keep a close watch on the truth, keep the truth unstained from the world, are not doing their job. Again, you got one job. Just preach the truth. And if we don't do that, we're failing to do our job. It's so important that we lay these two ideas beside each other. John, the same John, could say, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. At the same time, Paul could say, it's like I'm in the anguish of childbirth again with you to see Christ formed in you. Why? Because they were walking away from the truth. In Corinth, Paul said he felt a a divine jealousy for the saints in Corinth. Now, if Paul felt that, how much more does Christ himself, the bridegroom, who shed his blood for the church, how much can we even imagine that he, he burns and boils over with holy jealousy when he sees false teaching creeping into his churches and just left unchecked? False teaching eventually leads to false practice. That's always the pattern. Wherever you find sinful practices, it's because somewhere, somehow, there is, there is a false doctrine, a, a, a false belief being harbored in the heart. So how jealously should we defend the truth? How quick should we be to stop errors? So that's, that's not right. How sharp should we be in stopping the mouths of those who defile the truth? It boils down to this. God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me, except by the truth. When we don't uphold the truth, we are stiff-arming people from the kingdom of God. We're saying, you can't come in. We're not going to give you the way into the Father. And when we allow truth to continue in the church, we're simply allowing Antichrist to have free reign amongst the people of God. Christ said that he was the, the door of the sheep. And you've, you've all heard the, the illustration there that he's the shepherd would literally, literally lay himself down at the, the door of the sheepfold. Not so the sheep couldn't get out, but so the wolves couldn't get in. So the picture here is that these, the, the church and, and even especially the elders have sort of gone to sleep and just left the latch open. And they said, well, these sheep are not going to go anywhere. Not realizing the problem is not that they're going to go somewhere. The problem is that it can come in here. Evil and danger comes in. And that's what has to be guarded against. We ought to be zealous for the truth. It's not enough that we can say we just haven't capitulated to the pressures outside the walls if we're letting their philosophies come in the door with us. Into the doors of our own congregation. We have to be on guard with the books that we read, podcasts, television, radio, anything on the internet, music that we listen to, conversations that we have or overhear, advertisements that are placarded before us constantly. We can go out into the world and pick up these bacteria, these these ungodly viruses, not even knowing it, these worldly philosophies, and then we walk into the church and we are the carriers of the virus and we bring it in. And we can say, well, we're not doing what Caesar tells us to do. But you're bringing these teachings in. We have to be on guard from the subtle teaching of the world that says it's perfectly acceptable to be a Christian, to confess Christ, and also offer a little bit of worship at the altar of the state. As a matter of fact, there are some people who equate the two. We know this. You're not a good Christian if you don't blindly assume everything that our nation does is is good and right and and, and honorable. You're not a good Christian if you don't pledge undivided allegiance to this nation and in whatever cause. you You just bow. No matter what they do, you bow. Christ didn't believe that. He said, you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. That's not everything. The state... Now, I use that term for federal government, local government, state government. They believe that your children ought to be theirs. Go sit in one day of family court and listen to the social services professionals talk. They believe you, you're not capable of raising your children, they should have your children. They believe your property ought to be theirs. Now they can't just seize your property yet and so they just say you've got to pay your property taxes. In other words, you've got to pay us for owning your stuff. How absurd is that? Because they believe your stuff ought to be theirs. They believe your allegiance and your worship belongs to them. Go to the American Legion website and read the, 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 the rules of the ethics of a flag that is to be stationed in a church building. It gets the position of prominence. Go down the road and look at the flagpole on the side of the road. You have a Christian flag and an American flag. You know which is on top? The Christian flag. Now, now did they, are they raising the flag saying, well, we've got to worship Caesar? No. That's just the rules of etiquette. These are just the rules of etiquette. Right. Because they believe they should have your allegiance. They are the one making the rules. This goes back to Israel, rejecting God as their king demanding a king like the nations. It goes all the way back to, to Shinar and Nimrod where they built the Tower of Babel, the original Babylon. We're going to keep that in mind throughout the Revelation. This is the picture. Man building his kingdom. Man building his, his, his political empire that says, you need to worship me. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when Satan said, in essence, you know, God's authority, it's really pretty restrictive. You should get out from underneath that thumb or all the way back to the halls of heaven when Lucifer made the attempt to exalt himself above Christ. The devil is furious because he knows his time is short. He knows his leash is short. He knows that whatever influence he has, it's always under the watchful eye of King Jesus. And so what he'll do is he will use... Men, He will use the governments of men. He will use intimidation. He will even use the sword. Keep that in mind. The sword that God gave to the civil magistrate. The devil will take that and use that to threaten the people of God. To try to tear down the kingdom of Christ. Satan has a throne. Satan has a sword. But it is beneath the throne of Christ. That sword is powerless. Apart from whatever length of leash Christ allows him to have. So this kind of thinking has crept into the church. Can you even imagine it? An idolatrous, worldly sensualism said to be compatible with Christianity and Christian worship? Of course we can imagine it. We've done it. We've watched it. We've seen it. Can you imagine idolatrous, patriotic statism laid right alongside Christian worship? Hey, it's, it's, it's Veterans Day. It's Memorial Day. Let's just, all of our songs, let's just worship the red, white, and blue, the God of the state for the whole day in the worship of God. These things are not evil in themselves, but when they are pitted against each other or when the worship of God is scooted to the side so that we can elevate the nation, of course we can imagine it. So what does the Lord have to say? First, he says, therefore, repent. The Word of God is clear on the duties of the church with regard to false teaching and false teachers. Snuff it out. Don't allow it. It doesn't doesn't happen in here. And now Christ has even emphasized again, rebuking and reproving and correcting their errors with His Word. Now we'll see the threat in a minute, but in light of the threat... They are to recognize and we are to recognize the great danger of allowing this kind of teaching to continue. It's contrary to Scripture. It's contrary to God. It's deadly to the faith of the saints. It is an affront to the holiness of God. So it's, it's very dangerous, but at the same time, Christ comes first in mercy. He comes to reveal to them their error, almost an appeal to them. And we see that again, Christ is not abandoned Them. He's not left his church to flounder and just try to figure it out. He comes and he addresses what is their specific problem. The Proverbs say that a a wise parent will not leave their children to themselves because that child left to himself will eventually bring shame upon his mother or to his mother. If that's a wise earthly parent, how much more could we say that Christ, looking upon his people, the sheep of his pasture, does not leave us to ourselves? All throughout these chapters what we're seeing is Christ has not left us to ourselves. He doesn't want us to flounder in falsehood and error and self-destruction. And so he comes with this word of warning and their job is to repent. Turn from the sin. Endeavor after new obedience. Address the false teaching. Get rid of the false teachers. Defend the sheep from ravenous wolves. So they are to repent. And then he gives them this threat. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, them, that is the purveyors of this false teaching, those who are holding these teachings. I've mentioned this before, but it it, it intrigues me. This is fascinating to me. And I love to take notice of this Truth, how merciful it is of Christ who has established in his church in such a way that our sins can be brought to light before and even confessed to brothers and sisters who are our peers. That rebuke and rebu- reproof and, and correction can be given out week after week after week by men who can actually sympathize with participating in and feeling these same sins. We, we recognize this tension just as badly as one another and we can confess these things to one another. It's a great mercy, a merciful dispensation of the Savior that He doesn't come immediately in anger and destruction. But if we refuse to hear and if we refuse to obey... He threatens to come in a way that is not so tenderly mediated. He says, I'll come to you soon. I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, what exactly does that look like? I really don't know. And I don't want to know. It's not the final judgment. It's some sort of pre-judgment day exercise of violent discipline. Why? Because you don't mess with, with Christ's sheep. You don't draw away the attention of Christ's bride. You don't stand in front of her and try to draw her eye away from Him. He is a very, Jesus Christ is a very jealous and avenging God. And so whatever this looks like, it's a threat and and something we ought to take very seriously. But then He gives this invitation, as we've seen, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, His his passion for the purity of His churches, His watchful, searching words. He wants them to hear. He wants them to receive His Word. We might tend to think, well, just a little half-truth or a half-doctrine. It's not really really all that significant. Just sort of let it slide. That a slight deviation from the pattern of sound words, it's not worth addressing. It's not worth bringing up. But Christ knows and Christ is watching and He hears every word we utter. We'll be judged according to every idle word we speak. And so He says, if you're hearing this, if this is coming to you in spiritual application, then stand on guard and examine yourself. Do you think that the church will be fine? That a church could be fine as long as we have mostly truth, but also some error. Of course not. Does every church have some error? Sure. But we're not happy about it. We should always be on the offense to rid ourselves of error and seek the truth. Do you think that somebody else's practices outside of the church are of no consequence to the activities of the church? Remember, we studied this in our unity. It certainly has an effect on how our gifts are used in the body. So don't listen to that lie that says, well, a little bit of error is not that big of a deal. Christ speaks to His church and He says, take up the cause, stand for truth. That's what I'm doing. That's what Christ is doing. When we take up that cause, we're joining Him in His present role, guarding His church, purifying His bride. He's living to make intercession to bring about a pure and spotless bride. When we labor after the truth, we're joining Him in the very thing that He's doing, that He's promoting. Are you under the impression that as long as you confess the right doctrines with your mouth, that you can also harbor some inordinate allegiance to the kingdoms of the world? Then you must remember there's only one kingdom that's going to stand. It's the kingdom of Christ. Are you more concerned in a day when we know everything it seems that every nation is doing in the world every hour on the hour are you more concerned with the ebb and flow of the political state of our nation than about the perishing souls all around us constantly fretting about what's going to happen what's going to happen i mean what if this and what if that and what if this deal doesn't get made or does get made or what's going to happen and the people around you across the street side by side at work are presently walking to hell but what what if this happens no it's happening Right in front of our faces. It's happening. But we very often we we think that Jesus needs America on his side, and so we care far more about the this this rise and fall of the political scene. I'm not saying these things are absolutely insignificant, but compared to Christ and his kingdom, they're absolutely insignificant. Ultimately, we have a king who's already won the victory. We've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So how foolish is it for us to constantly fret and worry over the kingdoms that can be shaken? Like, all oh, the kingdoms are shaken. Right. Exactly. That's what they're going to do. Right. We have the one that does. It can't be shaken. Right. Why, are we, why do we entertain this? Or think it's strange that this is happening. Christ is our rock and our refuge. So we take comfort in Christ and we pursue the, the work of His kingdom. And then he gives this promise in verse 17b. To the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now these are difficult words and I'm tempted to almost let everyone have a seventh inning stretch before we dig into them. But um, I don't think it's quite as mysterious as it might seem. Remember that the one who conquers is the one who's faithful to the end. It's a Christian who's made it to the end. The manna is not so difficult. We know that the manna was the bread given from heaven to the children of Israel in the wilderness. The hidden manna is more than likely that little bit of manna that was placed in a jar inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so... And ultimately, of course, Christ is the true bread from heaven. Christ is the all-sufficient sustenance of His people, the people of God. So the manna points ultimately to Christ, but we have this hidden manna, which was in the Ark of the Covenant, which still points to Christ. It's the same picture. In chapter 11, we'll see that John gets sort of a glimpse into the heavenly temple, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. Again, I don't think it's the, the physical Ark of the Covenant. It's meant to... to for John to see the presence of God dwelling in the heavenly temple. So to receive the hidden manna is to receive the eschatological fulfillment of the hope of the saints, which is to enter into the heavenly temple, to dwell in the presence of God forever and eternally feed on Christ Himself who is there waiting for us. That's the hidden manna. Whoever conquers, they get that and that's not going to change throughout the book of the Revelation. That's, that's the goal that we're working towards. Now, then we come to this idea of the white stone. A white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled explaining this, and when you read, it's almost like men say, I will give him a white stone, period, and then they just run. And got to find, we've got to find a white stone. Something about a white stone. What's a, a white stone? white stone. Well, let's just set the white stone on the corner of the desk for a second and see if there's anything else in this phrase in, in Scripture that can help us because it's not just a white stone. It's also a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And we ask, because we believe Scripture interprets Scripture, is there anything in Scripture that would, that would give us some information about that phrase? Several things. Chapter 3, verse 12. Another description of the conquerors. Speaking of the conquerors, says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own new name. So there it's not written on the stone. It's written on the conqueror himself. In chapter 2, it's, he's going to get a name. In chapter 3, it's the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, the name of Christ. Christ's own new name. In Revelation 19, Christ, we see a little information about that name He has. His name, or His eyes are like a flame of fire. On His head are many diadems. And He has a name written that no one knows but Himself. That's almost exactly what's happening here. There is a name that is exclusively known to the the one who's been given the name, just like it is with us, the conquerors. We, like Christ, share this exclusive knowledge of the name that's been given. But again... It's no secret because we've already heard that the name is the name of God and the name of the new Jerusalem and the name of Christ himself. Revelation 3, 7. All of the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads Chapter 14, verse 1, the very same group. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with Him 144,000, who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. What's the seal? It's the name of God, the Father, and God, the Son, sealed on the forehead. They're sealed. And then in Revelation 22, In glory no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. So this is sort of a a collection of verses. So we have this idea that there's a name given that's exclusive to the recipient. It is the name of God and of the new Jerusalem and of Christ. It's written on their foreheads, but it's on them, but it's on a stone. Or we might say it's on a stone that's on their foreheads that's on them, And it's something that's only going to happen after we have conquered. To the one who conquers, I will give this white stone. Now, where did we say the hidden manna was? The hidden manna was in the Holy of Holies, in the Ark of the Covenant. This now fulfilled in the heavenly temple, the heavenly Holy of Holies, where Christ is. Going back to the the type, who was allowed in the Holy of Holies? only the high priest, and only once a year. So we've already seen if we are to be getting the hidden manna, then that means that we are going to be given admittance into the heavenly holy of holies where Christ is. In other words, we are given a, 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 a privilege that was once exclusive to the high priest. So we get to partake of this hidden manna, and then we could ask, is there anything in Scripture that would shine light on the idea of the high priest going into the Holy of Holies with something on his head that had a name on it. Of course, the high priest wore a mitre on his head that said, Holy unto Yahweh, Holy unto the Lord. The Bible says it was engraved like a signet, or literally like a seal on his forehead. The the stamp mashed into a piece of wax... In other words, it wasn't a letter placed on top of the gold. It was impressed into the gold and worn on the forehead of the high priest. So Aaron the high priest was sealed on his forehead with the name of God, which symbolized his consecration unto God and the special privilege he had of entering into the very presence of God once a year. Now... Just to backtrack, where does the name of the new Jerusalem fit in here? Well, remember, Jerusalem was the place where God made His name to dwell. And this is fulfilled not in a physical location, but in the people of God, a spiritual people who have the name of God placed on them. Now, Isaiah 62 also gives us... addresses this idea of a new name. Verses 1 and 2. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. So there we see the Lord is going to give a new name to the true Israel of God and this name is is more like a corporate identity as the new Jerusalem, the people of God. This new name, and I'm quoting Greg Beale, who says, This new name is a mark of genuine membership in the community of the redeemed, without which entry into the eternal city of God is impossible. That was a suggestion. So what, what's, what's with the stones? We can pick the stone back up. So what's with the stone? Well, it could point to that thing that was the, the mitre on the high priest's head. So it doesn't, we don't picture it so much as a pebble but more as an inscription in stone. But also if we continue reading in Isaiah 62, verses 3 to 5, he says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. Here he's talking to the church. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married, for as young man as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and the bridegroom as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So In the same context where we have this language of the new name given, there's also this this sort of slide into the language of the new covenant community being given this crown of beauty and also given the language of marriage and of a bride. We know crowns would typically have glorious stones in them. Proverbs 12.4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Well, who better fits the description of an excellent wife except the, the church that Christ Himself has purified with His own blood. He's given her His own righteousness. And so what we could say is that the white stone is, it teaches us ultimately the conquerors receive the full and final eternal vindication of their standing with God etched in stone, sealed for eternity and everlasting enjoyment of the personal presence of the groom who shed his own blood for her. He has a new name. He gives us his name. He is ours. We are his forever existing to eternally manifest his royal majesty. We are the crown of his glory. We are, the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so... Really, it is, again, the person of Christ who's the greatest motivation to heed this warning, to act in obedience to His Word. We endure, we get Him. The point is not go into heaven. The point is we get Him. Revelation 2.12, back at the beginning, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The two-edged sword in Christ's mouth is a blessing to His people. Those who obey, it's a blessing. But it's terrifying to those who disobey. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. It will will wound and it will also heal. Now, we have His Word. We've been given His commission as a church. We have an all-sufficient revelation for all matters of life and godliness in the church and in the world. What an immeasurable gift. Everything that we need in His Word, a blessing. But at the same time, that doesn't relieve us of any responsibility. It increases the responsibility. There is no excuse for departure. You've got it written down. What more do you want than written revelation preserved? No excuse for departure from His Word. No excuse for allowing error to continue and saying, Well, we didn't know. No excuse for not addressing falsehood. His word cuts both ways. And the people of God have to be more concerned about Christ's sword than the sword of the magistrate. We must be more willing to bow at the throne of Christ than at the thrones of the kingdoms of men. He's perfect. They're not perfect. He's eternal. They're not eternal. He's going to rule forever. They're not going to rule forever. He's going to come in power. They're going to cry out. Just kill us now. We don't want to be here anymore. So let's pray that God would give us strength to preserve the truth in His church. Regarding the truth and what it is, what is our job, the world around us would suggest that uh, all religions are essentially the same and that access to heaven or the presence of God or whatever they want to call it is is really purely based on whether we're, we're good, whether we're good people, whether our goodness outweighs our badness. So here's the truth, and this is what the Lord's table is a reminder of. This is the truth of God's word. We're all sinners, and we've sinned, not just in, in our deeds, it's not just that we do sinful actions, that every one of us are, at our very core, by nature corrupt and offensive to God, a stench in the nostrils of God, and that uh, because God is holy, He's not going to allow you into His presence. Everything in God, when when confronted with the sinfulness of man, wells up in in eternal wrath and anger. And the only thing that's holding it back is His patience to carry out His plan in due time. But the truth is from Scripture is that Jesus Christ, who is God the Son, took flesh, came to the earth as a man, lived in the place of sinners, a holy life, meeting all of the requirements of God, not only as a general man, but as a man in... Judea, a Jewish man, observing all of the laws, not only the moral law, but all of the laws that were given to them, that people, by God. And even though he was perfectly righteous, he was put to death. On the cross, God poured out the wrath that he has for sinners onto his son. Christ received in himself the judgment that was due to the people of God that we deserve because of our sin, because of who we are by nature, Christ took that unto Himself and bore it into His grave. He was killed. And it was not essentially men killing Christ, but Christ Himself yielded up His Spirit to the Father after having endured that penalty. The penalty that would have taken us all of eternity, and we still could not have paid it back. Christ endured the fullness of that penalty and satisfied the wrath of God within the spans of a few hours. And that wrath is gone. When He died, it was gone. For the people of God, it doesn't exist anymore. It's, It's a thing of the past. The Lord's Supper is that reminder. The bread reminds us of His body hanging on that cross not just suffering under the tortures of men, but bearing the wrath of Almighty God. The the cup reminds us of the blood that poured out of His body, not just because His wounds were open and that's what happened, but because God required bloodshed to make atonement for the sins of His people. And that body and that blood for that short time satisfied God so that He was raised from the dead. That's what the Lord's Supper is. And the truth of Scripture is that nobody is going to come to God any other way except in faith in that sacrifice. Taking hold of that sacrifice by faith. The only absolute, if we can... And this is why faith is so important. If we are sure of anything, it's that our obedience... Is insufficient because we are sinners. We are absolutely certain that it cannot be us, that it has to be somebody else to to work out that perfect righteousness. It cannot be us. Saving faith says, I'm looking away from me, certain that I can't do it, unto Jesus, certain that He has done it, and relying completely and solely on that. That's the truth. Nobody comes to God except by that means faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord's Supper teaches us. So as the elements are passed, just meditate on that. The way has been made open to the Father in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ.